And so let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Can you believe that? Lesson 25 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I have thought about taking a review, but if we did a full review, it would take the whole evening. So we're going to do a 30-second review. So just flip the page over Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes are the introduction, the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the things that God wants to do in each heart and life. But we have to make that choice to let God's work happen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor is not having the ability to gain what is needful. You are spiritually destitute if we could only see ourselves the way God sees us. If we could only understand our sinfulness and our frailty as the way God does, we are poor. There is nothing we can gain that will make us pleasing to God, but God will give it all if we'll ask Him. Amen? But God will not give anything to someone who thinks they have it all. Do you ever get feeling spiritual? That's what people say when they feel super strong in the Lord. I'm feeling spiritual today. You hear anybody start talking like that, you know they're in trouble. Pray for them. Amen? And um, no, poor. It's not fun to be poor. It's It's not pleasant not to have what you need and not to have any means of getting it. That's what poor in spirit is all about. Then it says, blessed are they that mourn. No one ought to be happy about being poor. Amen? There's nothing happy about it. But mourning for the right reasons. You know why we normally mourn? Because we have to do without something. There's no jelly for the toast. That's not the right reason to mourn. When we mourn for the right reasons, it brings us closer to Christ. That's where the blessings are. Amen? When we mourn, not just because we have failed. I want you to pray. I'm working on sermons for Palm Sunday in two weeks and Easter Sunday. We should have some visitors those weeks, but I want to preach something that will be for all of us, mourning for the right reasons. That will cause us to develop this thing called meekness, where we operate under the authority of another. Have you ever tried to do something and just messed up? 
And then you get the instruction manual. And you open it up, press control and escape at the same time. And you press the buttons and then you read the next one. Now with your nose, turn the monitor. No. Um, When you finally give up on doing things your way and open God's instruction manual and start doing things His way, that is meekness. And by the way, you'll find out that you had more courage and more boldness being meek than you ever did trying to be bold and courageous on your own. That's meekness. That is a blessing from God when you start operating under His direction instead of yours. And, oh, we've only got a few more. Let's get them all. After meekness comes hungering and thirsting after righteousness. No more spiritual Doritos and Coke, amen? You start desiring the right things. We're not going to stop off at Dunkin' Donuts and call it breakfast. We're, we're going to get some real food. When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you have to retrain your desires. But if you're not meek, you don't have any boundaries to retrain your desires because you're still operating under your direction, not under God's. And until you mourn, you're never going to... Do you see how these things build? And we've been over this, and, and, I, and I wish we could just somehow get out a hammer and chisel and engrave it upon the heart of each individual. These are the things that God wants to do. And once He starts doing them in our lives, that's where the blessings come from. It's not getting a big stimulus check from the government. It's not getting your taxes, uh, your tax return improved. It's not uh, having enough money in the bank to pay all your bills. It is being poor in spirit. It is mourning. It is being meek. It is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because once you're filled with righteousness, you have what it takes to overcome the world. How are you going to conquer? We don't conquer sin by sinning more. We overcome evil with good. Where are you going to get good? You, there's only one good, that is God. There's only one good, that is God. Amen? If you're going to get righteousness, you've got to go to Him and get it. And once you get it, then you can stop giving everyone else control over your life. And you can start being merciful. Remember, until you're the victor, you can't give mercy. Until Jesus beat you, until you surrendered, until you agreed that you were done, you were finished, you totally surrendered to God, you could not receive His mercy, neither can you give it to another person until you've conquered yourself and not giving the impetus of your life to somebody else.
You know, one of the greatest problems we face today is we have a whole section of American culture and life who think that because these AIG executives got bonuses that somehow they've been impoverished. I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing more insane than that kind of thinking and that kind of reasoning, yet it's everywhere. I mean, we got people threatening to murder these people just because... I don't know, how many of you heard the letter of the one AIG executive? Has anybody heard that? He was going to get $750,000 as a bonus. Man, what a... You know how, how much he worked for for the year before he got that bonus? A dollar a year. He gave up his salary. He was working 16 hours a day. And he was promised a bonus if he could straighten out his division, which he did and made it profitable. And then he was going to take his bonus after he paid the taxes on it, which is now going to be over 90%, and give away his salary. And the news media has painted this man as a whining fat cat who doesn't deserve what he was going to what he was going to get and uh, if you want the website I'll give you the links and you can go to it um, it was one of the talk show guys was reading the letter I just happened to pick up part of it not every AIG executive is like that okay but this one was but all I'm simply saying is if you think somehow you're going to be enriched by them being taxed at 90%, there's something wrong with that. There, there's just something wrong. We got to get over ourselves. Amen? This thing called mercy. How many of you have received mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ? The forgiveness of my sins. If he has not changed the direction of your life, if he has not given you new marching orders, then you have not received God's mercy. That's what it's all about. Amen? He's changed the direction of my life the moment I surrendered to him and asked him to save me. And let me tell you, he has done a whole lot better job with my life than I ever have and ever could. Now, we're supposed to take his mercy and pass it on to others. But if you're still fighting yourself, you, you can't give mercy to anybody else. Just can't do it. And that's where the blessings are. Everybody wants to help somebody. But I'll tell you, I've had some help that I could do without. How about you? I remember in one of our little projects... And I'm not going to say which one. We had some quote-unquote expert carpenters. And they said, listen, Pastor, we'll put that wall together for you. I said, man, that'd be great. Do it. And I had to take it apart and put it back together after they put it together. Because even in my ability to improvise, I couldn't fix the good help that I had received. It was hard for me to be pleasant 
as I am looking at all these hours of work that I have to redo because of the help I got. Now, most of us have received help like that over the years, have we not? Let's not be guilty of helping the world in which we live like that. Let's get some mercy. By the way, you're going to get mercy the same place you got righteousness. It's something you get from God. It changes you. And then you can pass it on to others, and it will change them. Amen? And it gets better because after you've obtained mercy, then you can have the greatest single accomplishment in this life, a pure heart. That pure heart means you have one direction with your life. How many of you have ever felt, I'm being pulled in so many directions, I don't know which way to go. It's because you've got a problem with pureness of heart. When we have a pure heart, it's unadulterated, it's clean. It's only going one direction. It only has one desire. That's where the blessing is. And you see... Then you can be a peacemaker. Only then. We got a lot of people who haven't learned that they're poor in spirit out there trying to be peacemakers. Doesn't work that way. You've got to work through the, the blessings. You will be persecuted by those who refuse to receive God's blessings. Nothing new. God says rejoice. Don't get upset. Then we move on. And he says you're going to be the salt and you're going to be the light of the world. Don't try to be salt and don't try to be light. Work on the Beatitudes, work on the blessings, and you will be salt, and you will be light, and your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it's interesting that Jesus spent the biggest part of this sermon, more verses on this subject than any others. We've been at this for months on the issues of the law to the Jewish Mind, the law was their religion. It was their hiding place. It was their direction on everything that they did. And yet Jesus tore their understanding of a law from limb to limb. He put it through a cross-cut shredder. When it was done, the righteousness that they thought they had obtained was proven to be less than the filthy rags that Isaiah talks about. You don't want to kill anybody? Okay, let's get serious about this thing. Don't hate. And forgive in your hearts. Because if you can't forgive, you don't have salvation. Let's, let's pray about that. Let's work on that. That's something that, if you can't forgive, there, there's a real problem. That's why these first commandments here are so serious. He said, listen, you got an issue with your brother. Go solve it. You got an issue with lust. You better be willing to die trying 
or you're never going to get over it. Then he said, listen, when you say something, live a life that doesn't have to prove it. Amen? Always, always get nervous when someone starts wanting to prove what they've just said to me. Because I know I'm talking to a person that's accustomed to saying things that aren't true and being found out they're not true. You ever, you ever meet a liar? I mean, we all have, have we not? And they know that people don't trust what they say, and so they're all the time trying to prove it. This really, really happened to me. I mean, I can prove that it happened to me. Hey, if you have enough character just to tell me the story straight, I'll believe you. I want to believe you. But if you're going to spend half your time trying to tell me over and over again that I can believe you, I'm not going to believe you, man. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just not going to do it. The Bible says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And if you're sitting there trying to swear on a stack of Bibles, I know you got problems with the truth. And then it says, listen, this idea of turning the other cheek. It goes back to this thing called forgiveness. Amen. So much of this Bible is wrapped up. You may have a right to redress another person, or a person may have a right to redress you. But let's not spend our whole life trying to get even with somebody. That's what this passage is talking about here. It's not talking about if some thief comes up and tries to steal your wallet that you're supposed to hand it to him and, and turn your wife and kids over to the devious uh, designs of some evil person. What it's simply saying is, hey... Don't you put your trust in the law. I have my rights. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to get retribution. Don't waste your life. How many times when you're dead, when Brother Marshall was raising money for a bus, this was going on while we were just starting to date and things. Brother Marshall was trying to get a new bus. He had a 57 bus, and he was trying to get a 77. And... Uh, how many times he'd go into a church and talk about the need of the bus and somebody come up and say, you know, I got a lawsuit going on and as soon as it gets settled, I'm, I'm going to get a settlement. I'm going to give you some money. You know how much money he got from those people? Nothing. Not a dime. You can spend your whole life chasing after that dollar. Or you can just let God take care. I'll tell you, God will straighten that thing out. Amen? I remember one time, just a little illustration of this, we had some scrap metal left over from a job, and I took it up to a place, and uh, the guy was going, well, you know, he says, I can't give you what I said on the phone. And I, I said, listen, I said, you got me. I had to rent a trailer to bring this trash over here, now, how much are you going to steal from me? Well, I wouldn't say it that way. I mean, that, don't, don't get an attitude, preacher. I said, what am I supposed to do? I said, you're, you're, you're going to take advantage of me, so what are you going to give me? I can't afford to rent another trailer. I said, I spent 25 bucks on the trailer. Can you at least pay the trailer rental? Well, well, I, yeah, I can. Well, it's going to be tough. 
diamonds. I just wanted to go, fire! But you know what I did? I said, Lord, in my mind, I said, Lord, I'm not going to get upset at this. It's ridiculous. If he wants to steal from you, you take care of it. He's out of business next time I look for a scrap dealer. God takes care of those things. Don't, don't you mess around trying to do it. You let God take care of that. Amen? Amen? Then you can be perfect like your Father in heaven and you're not worried about anybody. You can do good for anybody. Amen? I mean, if John Gotti was broken down with a flat tire, I, I'd like to stop and help him just the same as I would anybody else. Why? Because if... Well, he won't be standing in the room. I wouldn't even have recognized him if he were. I don't know what he looks like other than some of the pictures in the paper. I don't care. We want to do good to all people as God does. That's what perfection is. You see, these are all the issues of the law. Every one of these issues had to deal with the law. We're moving into the second part of Christ's sermon. And again, the subject, the topic, the overwhelming goal of all of this is the fact that if you're going to enter the kingdom that Christ has, your righteousness is going to have to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they knew the law. They knew all of it. In fact, they kept it to the very letter. And they missed the heart. And that's what Jesus was speaking to on the issues of the law. Amen? Now, I've termed the next section that he's dealing with issues in worship. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about praying. He's going to talk about forgiveness. And he's going to talk about fasting. These are the elements that make up what we call worship. We come together on Sunday nights to what? Pray. Part of our worship. Amen? Sunday morning, we come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this whole idea of worship is lifting up God and putting down ourselves. Now, don't get it wrong. God doesn't want you to hate yourself. You ever met a self-hater? Oh, I'm just ugly. I'm horrible. We had a person who used to call us up on the phone all the time. She'd get my wife and she'd say, I'm just the ugliest person in the world. Nobody loves me. After she did that three or four times for 45 minutes, I said, give me the phone. And I said, you're not going to like this. But what you're doing is backwards pride. You're just saying all these things so that someone will say, oh, you're not that ugly. That's ridiculous. Now just stop this foolishness and start concentrating on what God wants you to do. Amen? Listen, worship is not about you. That's the problem with Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life and the Purpose Driven Church. It's all about you. If it's about you, it ain't about God. And if it's not about God, it belongs in the trash can. Amen? 
That's the problem with Joel Olstein. It's all about you. Realize your dreams. Accentuate the spark of divinity that lies within you. We're all really good people. What a bunch of bunk. Have you read the paper this week? There's a lot of evil people out there. And I'll tell you more and more of them call themselves politicians. Whoop, excuse me. Um, but I mean there's so much garbage out there in our society today. Don't believe that. Remember the crazy man we had Sunday morning? We're all God's children. Well, if it's little g, little o, little d, and he must certainly been one of those, I guess, huh? Boy, that was scary, wasn't it? But if you're one of God's children, you'll love this book and you'll love other people. Amen? And you won't be interested so much in you. Now, we got six minutes to get our sermon tonight. I know if we reviewed it, just take up the whole time. But let's, let's start anyway, okay? And I, I promise I'll try not to keep you much more than about 9.30, all right? No. Um, take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet, before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now, this phrase, take heed, is probably as far as we'll get tonight. Fifty-five times in your Bible, the words take heed are used. Uh, I read all 55 verses. In the Old Testament, without exception, every time those words were used, it was a life and death situation. Take heed. It wasn't that Jesus was just saying, listen. He was saying, this is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. You had better pay attention. This is the sign that tells you the road is closed, the bridge is out. Maybe I'll get Anita to look up the story of the St. Petersburg Skyway Bridge. That was a horrible, horrible story back, I believe it was in the 70s. A freighter came into Tampa Bay and took a whole section of the bridge out. The bridge is 300 feet above the water. And in the fog, you couldn't tell that the bridge was out. And people were driving right off the end of that bridge into eternity. Now imagine being three miles out from land, 
going up a very steep incline on a bridge and seeing a man running at you on the bridge, waving at you, trying to get you to stop. What would you do? You'd swerve around him and step on the gas pedal and meet your death. Jesus is waving at you. He's saying, take heed. You pass this barrier. And it's not only talking about our giving, it's it, the application here. The context is in all of these issues that he brings up in worship. When we talk about listening to God, we often try to put that in the context of how we listen to our parents. Now, do I need to remind all of us here how we probably listened to our parents when we were of that age? There was always an option at the end, wasn't there? There was always, yeah, I'm going to do what you said my way. Anybody ever listen to their parents like that? <laughs> but we always put a little change in there, didn't we? We always slipped in what we could slip in when we could slip it in. That's human nature, isn't it? You can't treat God that way. You can't sneak around the back door and do what you want to do and still obey God. That's what these words take heed. Jesus is saying, listen, I've dealt with the law thoroughly, completely. Every issue that is in the law, I want you to understand that you think you're keeping the law, but it's that very law that condemns every act that you do. Now I'm moving from the law to what you do in a place you call church or in the Jewish people's mind. It was called the synagogue. And I'm going to start with your giving. You better take heed. You know, we look around on the windows. You're going to see nameplates on the windows. I talked to a stained glass guy several years ago. He told me, he said, for each panel, and this was probably 10 years ago, he said each square in there would cost $800 for him to come and take out the square and rearrange the glass and strengthen it up and recalk the thing and put it back. He said, by the way, if you want to change the nameplates, I'd be willing to do those too. I said, $800? What are you going to charge for the nameplate? Oh, depending on how fancy it is, uh, a very simple one with just block letters I could do for about $800. But one of these fancy ones with the German, the Gothic letters and stuff, he said, they're about $1,200. So that's absurd. He said, oh, no, no. He says it costs a lot of money to be recognized. That's the issue Jesus is speaking out of giving. There was a nameplate on everything in this auditorium. We had a guy, I don't know if he had a problem or not, but he must have had some kind of problem because he saw all those Jewish names all over everything. 
and he went around with a screwdriver. You'll see gouges in the back of some of the pews where he took the nameplates out. He stopped coming to the church shortly after that. I'm just wondering what the deal was there. But, I mean, you could see him working on one. Hey, don't do that. I mean, it'll come off easier than that. You don't have to put the screwdriver through the plate to get it off. You really don't. Um, But, I mean, everything, every seat had a nameplate in it. This is what Jesus was speaking about here. Do not do your religious worship so that people will look at you. Some of you used to go to churches and the only reason people came on Easter Sunday was so that everyone knew they still had enough money to afford whatever it was. I mean, they still have Gucci shoes and Coach hand. Coach, is that an expensive handbag? And uh, does anybody make hats anymore? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. It used to be who had the biggest hat and the biggest plume and the fanciest necklace and the shiniest shoes and the most expensive suits and... I mean, that's what church was about. God says, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. You can have it all. But you ain't getting anything from me. And I'm sorry. I've used ain't three times tonight, but it just helps express the point. Every time I use it, people go, huh, what do you say? And so... uh, It says, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, I just want to stop here because we're out of time tonight. But I want you to think about this. I want you to pray seriously. And and by the way, uh, as a church, we need to get another all-night prayer meeting and, and prayer meeting on the schedule. It's been a while. We, we really need to do that. Uh, I got to thinking and praying, you know, two years ago, we were barely averaging just 85 people. Now we're averaging almost 198, I think, the highest year average we've ever had. That was after we had those prayer meetings. But the question I want to ask you is, Are you doing what you do for religion because you want people to recognize you as religious? If that's the reason, there's some things that got to be straightened out and in a hurry. And there's an application to everything that we do, every part of our service to God. Are we doing it because we want people to look at us? If we are, we're in trouble. Now, people are going to look at you if you're truly truly religious because they've never met such a crazy person before in their life. Amen? So get used to being looked at. But if being looked at is what you're seeking, 
you're not taking heed to what Jesus is saying here. And this applies to every part of our religion. This applies to the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we come to church, the way we don't come to church, the way we give, the way we pray, the way we relate with other people. Every part of our relationship with God is to be done in a way that when it's over, people don't say, man, what a preacher. They don't say, what a Christian. They say, what a God. What a God. That's what we want. That's what we got to pray for. Because when we get this out of the way, all those blessings that God talks about back there, that's where they are. And when it's said and done, it is God that gets the glory, not us. I think if I ever write my life story, I'm going to call it ridiculous. Because everything we've done has been ridiculous. Can't go to New York City, they told us. One preacher said, they'll eat you. They said... You can't have a big family in New York City. I think we're past ridiculous. Amen? They said you can't buy an old synagogue. I think we're past ridiculous. Amen? But you see, if we get into this type of Christianity, then there's only one person that can take credit for it. It's not us. It's God. Amen? That's what it's about. And so, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll pick up with chapter 6, verse 1. All right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we ask that you would touch our hearts. Lord, we're not going through the Sermon on the Mount just so we can say we spent all these weeks in these few chapters of the Bible. We want you to change the way we worship, to change our understanding of it, to change everything about us so that when it's all said and done, people will have to say, what a God. We ask you to work in our lives that you may be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, let's just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed.